You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our reading today comes from James 2, 14 to 26. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Praxis Church. Good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here on behalf of the staff, the leadership of Praxis. If you're a first-time guest visitor in town from out of town, we're very honored that you're here. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, um, there is some at the back. Feel free to make use of that if you just need one for today. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you because you need one. Uh, Kelowna is a really unique place. I've just moved back here after being away for, I think, like 16 years Really unique place. I've been back since December. And um, Kelowna's unique because a, a, a really large, actually the majority of the population, identifies as Christian. That's, that's a unique thing. Um, not the case, always. What's even more unique is about one in ten of those people who identify as Christian, pre-COVID, were actually engaged with a church. So big population of Christians, very little engaged with the church. But what's even weirder is that Kelowna also has a massive, really high percent of non-religious people. Actually, one of the highest percentages in all of the world. So only countries like the Czech Republic, North Korea, China have higher populations of non-religious people than Kelowna. Really interesting. And when you have very two, two very different groups together, Rubbing shoulders, doing lives, living on the same street, working in the same spots. What inevitably happens is they begin to influence and impact and and kind of transform each other. So if you took peanut butter, put it on a piece of bread over here, jam on a piece of bread over here, and you clapped them together, then pulled them back apart, there's going to be jam on the peanut butter and peanut butter on the jam. And 
the religious here, they're being informed by the culture, the non-religious around them. The non-religious too, like it or not, are actually being very informed by the religious. And to the point where if you were to follow them around, you know, like secretly in shrubs and stuff, kind of stalker style for a week, and, and you were to observe both groups, you'd probably have a hard time telling them apart based off of what they do or don't do. Now, if you ask the Christian crowd, pointed this out, you know, they'd probably say, yes, yes, okay, but it's not our actions that save us. We're not saved by works. There's a lot of truth in that. If you ask the non-religious crowd, hey, you're looking a lot like Christians, they'd say, hey, we don't need your Jesus to be moral. We can be good moral people without any sort of religious belief whatsoever. That's a topic for another day. Um, One camp here saying works... I mean, we're moral enough. The other camp saying faith is enough. The scripture this morning, James 2, James is going to deal with this, um, this issue, this kind of unique cultural moment that we find ourselves in here in Kelowna head on. He's going to unpack and he's going to speak to the nature of true saving faith. And he's going to make an argument. And it comes up at a few different times in the text. But right there in verse 17, he says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And and the opposite is true, the way this sentence is structured. Faith without works is dead, but works without faith are also dead. Both are necessarily true. This is his thesis, if you will. This is what he's going to try to prove. And James is going to show us three things, if you're a note taker. First, the need for our faith to produce works. The second big idea that he's going to get at is the need for our works to proceed from faith. And then we're going to conclude, he's going to conclude with two arguments for his thesis, two historical arguments for his thesis. So that's our flow. If you're a note taker, want to know where we're headed, that's where we're going. If you haven't already, grab your Bible, open it up to James 2, and I'm going to open this in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God that didn't just start the world in motion, get it going, and then step back that you're engaged with your creation. You've self-revealed. You've made yourself known. You came in the person of Christ, and Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we have this picture of you in your Son, who you are, what you're like. And we praise you because, Holy Spirit, you've preserved that in the Scriptures for us for thousands of years that we might know you that we might obey you. And so would you, through your word, sharpen us, correct us, make us better disciples. Help us to be what you've created us to be in in a greater measure as a result of the word this morning. And that's a work I can't do. So I, I just declare my dependence on you, Holy Spirit, and I ask you to come do what only you can do, which is ignite in our hearts the words of Christ. We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. James 2.14. What good is it? My brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works. So, one, it's written to brothers. It's written to the church. This is a letter sent to churches, meant to be read there. So he's addressing this to a crowd that would identify as having faith. And he says this, what good is it if someone says they have faith but they're indistinguishable from the culture around them? You spend their paycheck the same, spend their spare time the same, recreate the same, buy the same things, watch the same things online, have the same retirement plan, have the same retirement ambitions. To the naked eye, they're the same. What good is it? 
What good is it if someone says they have faith, but that faith fails to produce anything? What good is a tree in my yard that doesn't do anything? If I plant an apple tree, it doesn't produce apples. Is it an apple tree? Or is it a dead stick that I pour water on? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? James, he opens with a hypothetical question. And then he's going to move immediately into a hypothetical situation. Verse 15. So, just hypothetically, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? If you are here last week, you remember... James set up another hypothetical situation where a rich person comes into church, the church largely made up of poor people, and the church whoo, clears the rows, they give the rich person the, the front row seats, kind of the VIP section, and they move the poor to the nosebleeds. If you were here for that, if not, that's all online. Now what he's going to do is going to flip the table, and, and, and he sets up a different situation. A poor man comes into the church, and, and there's people of means there, and, and the person of means welcomes them, but then sends them out without actually taking care of any of their needs. So essentially, he says, hey, welcome. There's someone greeting at the door. Come on in. And the, this person's hungry. He's naked. And, and, and he says, hey, come on in. Come in and hear the gospel, which is that Jesus found us poor and naked and clothed us and met our needs. Now have a good day and pats them on the back on the way out the door. The, the example is meant to be jarring. It's meant to be a little shocking, because the hypocrisy, I mean, if this were to happen, it would be appalling. That's why he says, verse 16, if you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? I reflected on this this week, and... Um, I was thinking about how this is essentially the story of the, the Good Samaritan in reverse. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, a man, a Samaritan who was an enemy of Israel, he finds an Israelite. So he finds someone who he's an enemy of. Beat up, stripped naked, and robbed, unconscious. And he, and he, he takes him puts him on his own donkey, brings him into town, pays his medical bills and his housing to get him well. If you remember that story. Here, here this, is a, this is a little bit of a different type of story where the Good Samaritan modeled a heart that would serve others at their own expense. Here, the someone that James is referencing in our story refuses to. And, and it does more than evidence just a cold, kind of hypocritical heart. It actually evidences a lack of faith, and I want to explain that. Let me try to explain that anyway. Within the Roman culture, uh, the, 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 the rich were shown favor by the poor. The poor would, would do things for the rich, defer to them, um, sing their praises in the streets because then the poor, uh, or the rich, pardon me, in order to curry the favor of the poor, would give them things. So last week, James talked about how the poor, clearing the way for the rich coming in, um, what really what this is, is it required no faith to show favoritism to the rich. It was actually a calculated decision. It's kind of like, hey, if I treat them well, I might get a tip. 
No faith necessary to show favor to the poor, to, 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 to pander, to, to the, or part, sorry, to show favor to the rich. But it requires faith to show care to the poor. It doesn't take faith to serve the rich, but it takes faith to serve the poor because if someone claims to have faith and claims to meet a, a core human need in someone else that they're capable of meeting, sends them off with a pat on the back, while wishing them good luck, they, they not only lack compassion, they lack faith. Because to do nothing requires no faith, but to, re- to do something, 100%, it requires faith. This example um, James uses, it might seem dramatic, uh, but things like this go on. We don't see a lot of naked people walking around Kelowna, especially when it's not summer. But there is a lot of other needs we see. You know, that kid down the street with no coat. That single mom who needs groceries. That person in our, maybe even our community group who can't afford rent. Things like this go on around us all the time. We're guilty of this same sort of situation today. Seeing the needs, giving them some trite Christian response like, Don't give up hope that the Lord's going to come through. Keep believing God's going to provide. Yet without seeing, we might be the one to provide for them. Hey, I'll pray for you. Maybe you don't even need to pray. Maybe you just need to do something. You just need to open our wallet. Open our heart. Maybe we don't need to pray for God's provision. Maybe we just need to be the provision of God. Maybe the coat the boy down the street needs is the one that's already in our closet. Maybe the groceries the single mom needs are the groceries that we were actually just on our way to go pick up. Maybe the rent that someone needs is something that our community group can can pool together and provide. It's a dramatic example James uses, but there's examples that we walk past all the time too, that we face all the time as well. And they're equally dramatic when we stop and we take a look at it. It makes me think um, of the situations I'm walking past all the time. You know, where in essence my actions have been saying, go and be blessed, be warm and well fed. I was in the Philippines once, uh, and I remember walking through this little, um, this area, it was a city actually, and I find this man completely naked and starving under a tree. I'd never actually seen anything like this in person before. And this was like a trafficked area. He's there and begging. And, and I remember uh, kind of thinking, you know, being appalled, but thinking like, why is no one doing anything? I mean, the, the Philippines is 93% Christian. So they're beating us. We're 54. They're 93. Why is no one doing anything? Where's the Christians? But here's the thing. If I had actually spoke to Gallag and could have a conversation and ask this question, why is no one helping? They would have had a reason. They would have had a really good reason. Just like we have excuses for not helping the people that we see. A couple of them. I was trying to think of some of these excuses. I think a common one, you know, they probably brought this on themselves. You know, they didn't do some. And, and to be fair, sometimes people need to live with the consequences of their actions. But I think something that we should ask ourselves 
You know, if we're, gonna, if we're hearing that in our head, they probably brought this on themselves, is am I being called to enact justice or mercy in this situation? They probably brought this on themselves. Or there are government services for that. You know, interacting with the government is different than interacting with the community. The church is supposed to be warm and welcoming, hopefully a little bit more warm and welcoming than government services. <laughs> I don't have time to stop. I think this all the time. Ah, but I'm in a rush. Then, and then I got really challenged by the Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 says that God saved us and has prepared good works before the foundations of the world for us to walk in. So if you wake up with breath tomorrow, there's good works for tomorrow. And if I woke up with breath today, there's good works for me to participate in today, or God would just take me to glory. Perhaps the thing that is interrupting our day is actually a setup from God. Perhaps we're crowding out the good works God's prepared for us with the make-work projects that we have for ourselves. Oh, God will take care of them. Oh, man, God will take care of them. In, in some aspects, this looks like it takes faith, but it's passive faith. God will do that. Active faith would say, hey, I'll take care of them, and God will take care of me so that I can be a picture of Christ in them. Oh, man, we got our excuses. We're probably, like me, you're probably walking past situations all the time. James is confronting this because he wants us to see a proper view of God in the gospel should give us eyes to see the opportunity, not just the cost. Proper view of God in the gospel should empower us to see opportunity and not just the cost. If you want to flip over um, to the left in your Bible, Matthew 25, verses 40 to 45, this, kind of, this text comes to mind for me. Jesus said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they'll also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, as you didn't do to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And then these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. It takes faith to act. It takes faith to act like the Good Samaritan, a belief that God will show up. It takes no faith to act like the person in James's dramatic example. It doesn't take faith. It takes faith to act. 2.17, James says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have action, if it doesn't produce works, if it doesn't have deeds, it's dead. It's dead because like a dead person, it does nothing. Dead people do nothing. Faith that does nothing, likewise, is dead. And the challenge here is, is just to look at our, our own lives and, and ask, is our faith producing anything? Is our faith alive? Are we passively acting in faith by not doing anything, or are we actively engaging in faith by doing something? And we're, we're called to works. 
We're going to be judged for our works. We just read that, Matthew 25, because faith works. It's like an electrical outlet, if you look at the image. It's like an electrical outlet. It does work. And, and faith has been given to us to work. So this is James's first point. Our faith needs to produce works. The second point is that our works need to proceed from faith. The works we do need to spring from that outlet of faith. Now my time as a pastor, I have, uh, I've done a number of funerals, a number, a large number of funerals. Funerals um, for those in faith, there's nothing like doing them. There, it's, there's a grieving, but there's a power. There's a hope, there's a strange part. It's, there's a, even a joy in the community when someone in faith passes on. I love it. The New Testament doesn't actually refer to brothers and sisters who die as dying. It says they fell asleep because we're just falling asleep and waking up in glory. There's a joy, strangely, in doing Christian funerals. But doing a Christian for, or uh, pardon me, a funeral for like a cultural Christian, it gets a little harder. It gets a little harder. The individual, you know, at some point might have prayed the sinner's prayer. He might have, 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 Maybe it's a camp experience, some sort of path crossing with Christianity. But there's very little evidence that they had any faith. If they had faith, you'd never know. And it's really hard to give the family assurance in these times without feeling like I'm I'm lying to them. Matthew 7 says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't... I don't get up there. I can't just get up there and say, hey, I know you know this guy for his tomfoolery and drunken debauchery, but you, you might not know, about 25 years ago, he prayed the sinner's prayer. And that's all it takes to actually have eternal assurance of your soul. I can't do that. My, my wife actually, she told me once about a Catholic priest, um, my wife grew up Catholic, who, who said this, he said, you'll be surprised at who will and won't be in heaven. And, and sometimes we go there, people will go there in funerals. It's like, oh, you know, well, we don't know where he is. Well, you know, I, I don't know that I agree with this Catholic priest. If by surprised by who ends up in heaven means like we'll be surprised who Jesus grabs hold of, transforms their life and turns them into a completely different person than who they were when he grabbed hold of them, yes and amen and I'm walking talking proof of that. But if, if it's the idea that I'm going to get to heaven one day and be like, what, Gaddafi? How did you get here? Gandhi? You didn't even believe in Jesus. No, no way. That's not what's going to happen. I do think, though, we're going to be surprised at who isn't there. I don't think we're going to get to heaven and have some friend pop up and be like, surprise, I was a closeted Christian the whole time. For many, Christianity has been reduced to a cheap prayer, the equivalent of fire insurance. I'll say this thing, I'll do this couple set of actions, and then I'm good. I'll go back home and practice juggling fire in my living room again. No. James 2.14, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? It's rhetorical. It's, it's not good at all. Now, I've done, a few, I've done a few funerals for people that aren't Christians at all. 
Um, I usually say no to this, and I let the dead bury their dead. And I don't mean to sound harsh when I say that. But I've done a few funerals for family friends, people that I've ministered to in the community who never came to faith. And I'll do these things really just as an opportunity to preach the gospel for five minutes to a room full of people who are probably never going to hear it outside of that. The hardest part of doing funerals for non-Christians is that there's no emotional resolve for the family. This person's gone, and there's nothing to take the sting away. I mean, you can believe in the circle of life, but it's not the same when someone gets up and says, well, don't worry, guys. Jim, his energy and his molecules are recollecting, and he's going to be a tree. It doesn't feel the same. It's not comforting. And, and every single one of these funerals I've been a part of, people always end up getting up and doing the same thing. They run through a list of all the good things this person's done. You know, oh, he loved his kids. Loved his kids. Loved walking his dog. Rover's really going to miss him. You may not know, back in the 80s, or was it the late 70s, he actually built a playground with the Rotary Club. And here's a picture of his sponsored rescue dogs in by wherever. This is frightening. It's frightening. We don't want to walk into God's presence one day, and when he asks us, why should I let you in, show us our lame list, our little resume. It doesn't matter how many soup kitchens we've served at, how many orphanages we've funded, how many plastic bags we've saved, how many cloth bags you bring back to, to Whole Foods, how many carbon credits you've purchased or hours you've volunteered. Our deeds can't save us. They won't save us. We don't want to stand in front of God one day and say, here's my resume. And this is who James is talking about here in verse 18. He says, some will say, you have faith, and I have works. You have faith, but I have works. Works can't save us. They won't save us. And to think that our, our works can save us reflects a garbage understanding of our offense against God. Let me give you an example. If I hopped down and took that pen from Cole and stabbed him till he died. It's not funny. This is... There would be effects of Cole dying that would ripple across his life. Michelle would be mad at me forever. Your sister's kids one day would miss their uncle. Your mom and dad would be horrified. There would be effects that would ripple across a generation or two because of this one action. Now, if I showed up to Jer and Jody, his folks who I know well, and said, you know, sorry, I killed Cole on Sunday. But here's a quilt I knit, and I've sponsored some rescue dogs in your name. It would make no difference, okay? His dad would straight up murder me. His dad's a giant. Some token gift would not atone for coal. It wouldn't. Our sin is not against six foot eight Jer Adrian. It's not. Our sin is against the God of the universe. Our sin is not something just rippling out on a temporal timeline. Our sin is against an eternal being and it ripples across all of eternity. This is why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. 
because it has a, a massive eternal consequence. And I'll say the same thing now that I say at every single funeral. You're going to die. And one day you're going to stand in front of God and you don't want to show up with your own resume. I'll tell you whose resume you want to show up with. Jesus's. His list of deeds. Jesus lived the life we couldn't. He died the death he shouldn't have that we deserved. And he gifted us the, the, the right standing before God that none of us deserve, that we could have never obtained on our own. It's a free gift. Romans 10, 9 now says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The only thing that, that earns us right standing before God the Father is this one thing, Jesus. Believing in him. Now, if, if this is you, if you're, if you're a Christian, truly, you believe this, you've confessed you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then there's something else. There is actually a power at work in you. There's a power at work in you. This sermon art is meant to reflect that. Faith came with a power outlet installed on the wall. When we came to faith, God the Father put the Holy Spirit in us, and on our wall is a power outlet that we can plug into and to empower our works. Works don't earn our salvation. Works are a result of our salvation. When he saved us, he installed the power outlet. So works and deeds, they're not our lame attempt at obtaining a right standing before God the Father. Works and deeds are things that flow out of our salvation. That's what Jesus teaches. Religion teaches, you do this, you do this, you do this, you'll get God. That's religion. That's every religion in the world. Christianity says salvation is something Jesus gave you and out of that works come. Real faith works. We're, we're the stereo here. This is our lives. We're meant to broadcast truths about who Jesus is. The way we do that is we're plugged into that power outlet. If our life is not projecting anything out of that stereo, we're either not plugged into the outlet or there's no outlet there. Now, I can hear a couple people, that, that little thought in your head, you know, but I believe in Jesus. James 2.19, he speaks to this. You believe God's one? You do well. You do well. But even the demons believe. Even demons believe in Jesus. Actually, so Luke 4, 33, 34, a demon came up to Jesus and said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Just a couple of verses later, demons actually came out of many people and they were shouting, you're the Son of God. They knew who he was. There's many, many, many other verses. The demons knew who Jesus was. Demons believe, but they don't obey. Demons know lots and lots and lots of things about Jesus. They know their systematic theology. They've been around their eternal beings. They've known things from the beginning. They've been there since the fall in Genesis. They know a great many things, likely a great many things more than us. 
but they aren't Christians and they won't be saved. You can know lots about Jesus. You can believe lots of things about Jesus. And you can have a faith that's no greater than a demon. Notice this too. You believe God's one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a response that they have to God. Looks a lot like fear of God, which we're all to have. They've got an emotional response. You can show up here. You can engage in worship. You can get all the goosebumps and the tingles. You can get a gold tooth. You can have your legs stretched and still not be a Christian and have a faith that's no greater than a demon's. Works without faith is dead. And James says, anyone who thinks differently, verse 20, is a fool. He goes Mr. T on us. Works without faith is dead. And listen, we're not going to get into heaven based off of our resume. Faith without works is dead. Because, and faith that doesn't produce works is actually a demonic faith. Faith and works, they're intrinsically linked. They hold hands. They need one another. They're like a, a Siamese twin who shares internal organs. If you pull one from the other, both are going to die because faith and works are linked. Verse 24 says this. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that, that's a giant theological egg. This is, this is a super controversial verse, actually. It's divided many in the church, so I want to I try to I want to try to explain it in greater detail. James is going to try to explain it, in fact, in greater detail. His premise, faith needs to have works, and these works need to flow from faith. And now he's going to show us two proofs for this. The first is the faith of Abraham. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Uh, this Again, this verse has divided many in the church. People have read this verse, and, and they go, man, James is contradicting the rest of the New Testament. It, he's contradicting a major tenet of the Christian faith, which is I mean, that we're saved by faith alone. Some have actually said, this book shouldn't be included in the New Testament because it seems to contradict it. But it, it's actually in, in agreement with the entirety of the New Testament. We just need to understand a couple things. Um, I'm going to put a, few, a, a couple scriptures up on the screen here first. So when people look at this, they will, they will think that James is contradicting Paul. So a couple instances from Paul here. Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not a result of works so that no man may boast. So Paul says, our salvation, our right standing before God is not a result of works. Then he says, also in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Now insert James, who says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see the contradiction? What is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? The answer, 
Yes. <laughs> James and Paul here, they're actually in agreement, but we need to understand how they're using some terms. They, they use the same terms, but they actually have different meanings in the way they're using them. So when James here says faith, he's referring to a belief in God, um, the type of faith that even demons can have, the belief that there's a God. When Paul uses faith, he's using it in the sense of trusting in Jesus' imputed righteousness, the righteousness that he's given us, that Romans 10, 9, confessing and believing that we read a minute ago. So James would agree with Paul. We are saved by faith alone, but James would add that it's not a faith that remains alone. On to the next term here. So um, Paul uses this word works. If you're in the NIV, it might say deeds. Paul says that, you know, we're, we're justified apart from deeds. James says that we're justified by deeds and works. So when Paul says works and deeds, he's referring to things that we do that we think can save us, that religious resume that we come with. When James says works, he's referring to things that express our faith, not earn our faith. Paul is referencing works that earn salvation. G, Paul or James is referring to works that evidence salvation. So they they agree on this. Paul and James. Um, Paul is pushing back against this idea that Jesus plus anything that we bring to the table would earn our salvation. That's not Christianity. James uses works to positively refer to this idea that faith is salvation that works. Works is in the equation, it's just on the other side of it. We don't work ourselves into faith, faith works itself out in us. We don't work ourselves into faith, faith works itself out in us. And he shows us this from the life of Abraham. If you're not familiar with this, um, Abraham's a big figure in in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham, says, hey, leave the place you're in, go somewhere else that I'm gonna show you. Then he shows up to him in this new place, Genesis 15, we've got it up on the screen. It says, the Lord came to him and told him, look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. This is God entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising him that he's gonna do something for him. He said, I'm gonna make you as numerous as the stars in heaven. Now, Then it goes, I mean, James tells us that um, we're saved by faith and works. What he's doing is he's anticipating, just leave this verse up for a second. He's anticipating somebody pointing back and saying, well, look, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was just his belief. James says, well, actually, let's take a look at his story. So Genesis 21, a little further on, Abraham finally has a child at the ripe old age of 100, just when we're all like thinking of dying, Abraham has a youngster. So they have a child and the promise of God is fulfilled. Then the next chapter, God comes and says, hey, come and sacrifice that child on an altar. And he does it, well he just about does it. And and, and then God comes through, God comes and interrupts. And really what what he's pointing out, Abraham believed this promise so much that he was gonna be as new, he was gonna have children that outnumbered the stars. He believed the promise so much 
that it would come through Isaac, his only child, that he was willing to sacrifice him. Hebrews 11 says, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise Isaac back from the dead. He had faith that acted. It worked itself. He had a, it caused something in him. Despite what the situation looked like, he believed God could do what he promised, and so he acted. You see, verse 22, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Was it, was it his actions that saved him? No. His actions evidenced his faith. Then, then James goes on to read, to tell another story. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? So if you don't know this story, Joshua 2. Um, after Joshua comes back to the promised land, to the place that he had went and spied out with Caleb. They're about to go across the Jordan and invade and take Jericho. They send some spies over. The spies go into this town of, of Jericho and, and they go in and they visit this prostitute, Rahab. Um, the king of Jericho finds out that the spies of Israel have come in. And so he goes to Rahab and says, send these men out. And she lies and says, oh, they're gone. She's actually hidden them under some, some flax on her roof. And then she misdirects the king, says they went out in that way. And then she holds them and actually releases them. And, and, and they go out. Incredible story. Really, what's so remarkable about Rahab is that she was a prostitute in a foreign nation. She'd heard about the greatness of God. She believed God was going to come and defeat her own nation. She heard the stories of, of God just delivering, turning other nations over to his people, and she went, that is the one true God. And so... Really, it seems that she believed that this was the one true God and no one could stand in his way. And she seems to also believe that this God was merciful. Before brokering any sort of deal with the spies, she misdirects the king. Then she comes to them, lets them go, doesn't even ask for anything. They deliver her. They save her. She willingly risks her life and limb. She didn't hedge her bets. She bet everything she had her life. Why would she do that? Why would anyone do that? Because she believed that she was going to die in that city. The only hope she had was to, to risk dying for a noble cause, to throw herself at the mercy of God. And so she put her faith into action. Who she believed the God of the Israelites was compelled her to act. And so what James is saying here, both Abraham and Rahab had belief. They had faith, but it was a faith that compelled them to do something. So back to James's argument here, verse 24, he says this. I'm in the wrong place, yeah. James says, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, just onto terms, this word justifies could mean a couple things. It could mean um, rendered righteous. You know, we're rendered righteous in front of God. Here, it means this. It means it evidences somebody as righteous. This is how James uses it. He's saying, 
we are evidenced as righteous by our actions. Martin Luther, he said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith without works is dead. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith doesn't remain alone. Faith that produces works won't save. This is his argument. James 2.25. In the same way, Rahab the prostitute was justified when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She was evidenced as righteous by sending them out by another way. She was willing to hide the spies, mislead her king, put her neck on the line, and just a nerdy fun fact, her faith so impressed Joshua that Jewish um, history records Joshua actually married her. And she went on to become the great-great-grandmother of Jeremiah and Zechariah. And if you go take a look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3, she's included in the lineage of Jesus. A prostitute, most unlikely person probably in many people's minds, comes to faith and it compels her to action. Verse 26, James says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works dead. Faith does something. Dead faith does nothing. Real faith acts. Our faith, if it is real, will manifest into action. Not to earn our right standing, but as an evidence of the fact that we have been saved. In gratitude, we act. Praxis Church, every one of us, if we have saving faith in the finished work of Jesus, are being called to put our faith into action as well. To not only believe, but to do something. To not only call Jesus our Savior but to follow him as Lord as well, to, to do what he commands, even in the face of the seemingly impossible. Like Rahab, risk our neck to the point where if God doesn't show up, it's going to go very, very bad for us. Like Abraham, who acted in such a way that if God didn't show up, all the plans for his life would, would crumble. Rahab risked everything, believing that the risk versus reward stood in her favor if she was doing this for God. There's always risk versus reward. We're always weighing that. The risk of following God, the risk and courage it will take to act our faith out will, will pay dividends. You can only lose if we, if we bet against that. Now, the same thing is being asked of us to put our faith into action, to manifest what we believe about God into, into a fruit in our lives, to wager it all, to bet the barn, to bet the farm, to put our head on a, the line in such a way that if God doesn't show up, we look like fools. And, and the question I want to close with, I want to put two up here, for us to consider and ponder is this. In light of this argument James has made, faith without works is dead, and we should have works that flow out of our faith, is this, where is God, where is God be calling you? We need to fix the wording on that, but where is God calling you to put your faith into action? Where is God calling you to put your faith into action? What situation around you 
Lord, we've been walking past. Have you seen what situation are you in? What does it look like for you to put your faith into action? And the second question is, what is holding you back? What's holding you back from action? Oh, the thing that was holding Rahab back, hey, my king might kill me. My people will disown me. I'll be burned at the stake. There's real fears. That's a real fear. Nobody wants that. Abraham, the fear that would have held him back, hey, I'm going to lose my child. That's a real fear. The, the, the action that we're being called to is to look and go, what is my fear and what does it say, what do I believe more, my fear or what, what I know to be true about God? So maybe you believe he's good and gracious, but you're afraid that if you forgive that person you know, you'll be hurt. Maybe, you know, you believe he's a rich provider. I mean, the demons know his name is Jehovah Jireh, God provider. But your actions are failing to act on that. Out of fear. Fear, maybe I'll go broke if I help that person. We, we believe he can save anyone he wants. We know that he's indiscriminate. He just saves who he pleases. It's nothing that we bring to the table. It's his gracious kindness towards us. But we're hesitant about sharing the gospel with that person because they don't fit the mold. It's uncomfortable. That might, that might socially impact me. We, we know he'll never leave us or forsake us, but we're actually afraid that if we do this thing and we step out in faith, we're going to end up high-centered destitute. You believe literally everything in the world is his and that he's given anything that we have has been given by him, but we're reluctant to give anything away. The call of James here for all of us, a band's going to come up now too, is just that we need to put our faith in action. Identify what's holding us back. Be honest and then look at that fear and look at your God. Look at the thing in, in, in reality that we've been making bigger than our God. And, and in response, we need to knock that down. We need to repent of those things. And we need to, to fix our vision back on God and who he says he is. It's only when we do that that we can begin to act in faith in all situations because we believe God is bigger than them. Practice, real faith produces works. And real faith will express itself out in